My time is short because we'd like to spend some time thinking about the Lord's Supper as we approach it, but give me a few minutes of your attention to think about the Word of God from a couple more standpoints, from a couple more aspects. We want to consider that God indeed wrote the Bible and see if we can prove it from looking at the Bible, and I'll be brief. I'd like to show you and prove to you that the Bible was written by God because of its practicality. Look at Romans chapter 1, its practicality. What I'd like to say by that word practicality is that the Bible addresses subjects in a way that the witness of nature confirms. Even though in our advanced society they're now trying to overthrow what nature confirms, the Word of God still agrees with it. And so we have within ourselves, not even by the Spirit of God, but by creation, a knowledge that the Bible had to be written by a very intelligent being, more so than those that are educators and leaders in this country. Because of Romans chapter 1, it tells us in verse 26 that because men are unthankful and they do not give God the glory and worship Him, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Do you notice that these verses tell us that nature teaches us that a man wants to make love with a man? I mean, a man wants to make love with a woman. Please forgive my speech in that sentence. A man wants to make love with a woman, and a woman with a man, and not with the same sex. Now, nature teaches us that, and the Word of God teaches us that, and the Word of God is not vague about it. The Word of God is very plain that sodomites are to be put to death, and that it's a perversion, and that it's an abomination. And yet, we live in a society where the nation is now teaching that it's entirely acceptable. It's ordinary. It's just an alternative lifestyle. And so what I want to point out to you is that that natural revulsion, which they're losing in our nation by continual bombardment of the senses, that natural revulsion and repulsiveness of sodomy is addressed in the Word of God, and the Bible is just as angry and hateful against such an abomination as our nature is, which shows us that there is in the Bible an author that matches up with the author of our inherent reasoning process. Now, when I said practicality, I'll bet you thought, how in the world is he going to work this one? That's what it is. And there's more than that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. But where are most of our long hairs found? On college campuses. Most of our long hairs are on college campuses because they're rebellious by nature. That's why they're in education. Because the stuff they teach isn't necessary for man's progress. The long hairs are from educated cities. I grew up around Ann Arbor, Michigan, one of the most liberal cities in our country. And that's where the long hairs were. The long hairs aren't out in the country. The long hairs aren't throwing bales of hay up on a wagon. The long hairs are in cities like that. And the educators, you know, are now pretty good at tying their hair back in ponytails. God said, 
it's a shame. And doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame? Doth not nature itself teach you? And along come the most educated ones in our nation and say that long hair is just fine in a man. And the Word of God, we read it and we say, I always believe that. And you believed it because God wrote it in your heart. Even nature... God wrote it in there that that is the way you should understand about hair. For, for long hair in a woman, it's a glory to her. Long hair in a man, it's a shame to him. And we all understood that until the Beatles came along. And then there's been a breakdown in our society, but still the Word of God, the, our 66 caliber howitzer continues along, blasting away the edifice of modern education and modern thinking and agreeing with what God has put inside us that short hair on a man is the way that it's supposed to be, regardless of what anyone says. It's amazing that some of the great thinkers of our society now condone sodomy and long hair on men and short hair on women. They're called the great thinkers because they've got free minds. You know, they can grow long hair and they can experience a new form of sex that man has condemned, but the Word of God hasn't changed. And a man who hasn't been exposed to all that influence hasn't changed either. They're still despised because it's a despicable act and a despicable way to look with long hair. Right. I'd like to add to that point of it's being practical, the fact that the Bible is so complete, it addresses every question that every man has ever had on any subject. You, na- you name me the subject, and I might ta- it might take me some time to find the answer. You email me a question that faces man in his lifetime, and I'll find you an answer in the Bible that makes it a unique book. In the sense of its completeness, it is so practical that it addresses every area of our lives. Now, you heard some men get up tonight and say that it addressed the marital aspect of their lives. And it does. And it does it rather plainly and rather pointedly and helpfully. And it addresses so many other areas in addition to that. It addresses our lives in the way of Bible economics that's been mentioned tonight. And on and on we could go and see how the Bible is so practical, it shows that it was written by a being that understands life in its complexity and its breadth. Amen. And so God wrote the Bible. Amen. That was one point, although it had two heads. Let me say, let me quote Robert E. Lee just to give you a little entertainment here. I wouldn't stand by much on what he said, and he, I don't really care who he is or what he did, but he's respected in the South, and so I want to give you a quote that he made about our book. The Bible is a book in comparison with which all others are of minor importance and which in all my perplexities and distresses has never failed to give me light and strength. And he did face perplexities and he knew that the Bible could answer them all. And it's wonderful to have other men witness to the integrity of this Bible to be practical in all cases of perplexity. Let me prove it from another point. It's survival. The Bible has survived against all odds. When when you write a book today, you do a market survey to find out what market niche is going to be interested in this book. How should we price it? How long should we make it? How long should the chapters be? Should it be hard or soft cover? Where do we market it? What bookstore chains are going to carry it? And on and on they go to find out if it can be a success or not. And if it's a successful book, it's at the top of the charts for a few weeks. And bye-bye. It floats away. The, the classics, how long have they been around? A few generations. The Bible. Think about its survival. It was written by 40 men over 1,600 years, and it was opposed 
by almost everyone except for a few weak people in the earth, the saints of God. In spite of all the numerous powerful and hateful enemies against a few weak and gentle Christians, the Bible has survived. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that when the devil realizes that his time is short, he is going to chase that woman, the church of Jesus Christ, and pursue her and throw up a flood of water after her to try to wipe her out of existence. And that is persecution and false doctrine. He is going to use every means at his disposal to get rid of the woman, the church, you and me, and the word of God. And the last verse of Revelation chapter 12 is, it says that the saints of God have the testimony of Jesus which is the word of prophecy. And he hasn't been able to get rid of it, which shows that God's stamp of approval is upon it because it has survived all odds against it. It has been ferociously attacked even when it was being written. Do you remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 tells us that there was a false epistles being circulated in Paul's day with Paul's signature on the bottom. Paul tells us that in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says there were many that corrupted the word of God even in 55 A.D. Many were corrupting the word of God even back then. Consider the Bible's enemies. What about the Jews? Did they like the New Testament? No. Well, what about the pagans? Did they like the New Testament? The Jews didn't like it because it condemned their religion. The pagans didn't like it because it condemned their religion. Who else do we have? Did the Greek philosophers like the New Testament? It condemned their philosophy. Did pagan Rome like the New Testament? No. Papal Rome? No. The Muslims? The Age of Reason? Heresies? Cults? The ACLU? The NEA? Modern educational institutions? They all hate the Bible. They all hate it. They have all joined together. I do believe in a conspiracy sometimes, and this is one of the conspiracies we all hate the Bible. Right. We've got to get rid of the Bible. The Bible has been burned more times than any other book on this planet. It's amazing how much people can hate a book. Now, that's going to be a proof later on. Because there's a devil in this world. And hatred doesn't come out of a vacuum. And hatred isn't focused foolishly. The devil doesn't fight foolish battles. He focuses hatred for a reason because he wants to put his stamp of approval on the Bible, being God's word, by showing us that that's the only book he's ever opposed. That's another point, though. Right now, I want to talk about his, the survival of the Bible. In spite of all those odds and everyone being united against it, burning Bibles, killing Christians, if you're caught with a Bible, off with the head. Caught with the Bible, we burn you at a stake. Caught with the Bible? Oh, you want to print the Bible? We'll dig up your stinking bones after you've been buried for 40 years, and we'll burn you anyway. That's what they did. That's how much they hated the Bible. That kind of opposition, no other religion or holy book, has ever experienced that kind of hatred as Bible Christianity has against it. If you stand up in a luncheon meeting at work today, and you say something about the Koran or you stand up in a college setting today and you say something about the Koran, you'll be esteemed a person of understanding. Stand up and say something about the Hindu Vedas. You'll be respected for being so widely read. Stand up and read the Bible and quote it and apply it like you truly believe it, and you're a religious fanatic. They hate the Word of God. They hate the Bible. The world is against the Bible, and yet it crunches on 66 books, 
bestseller 2001, bestseller 201. It doesn't matter. God, it has survived because there is divine preservation of it, and it should be obvious to any that look around. It, it, it has proven to be the Word of God by its survival. The world changes so much. In the last few hundred years, we've had the Industrial Revolution. Now we're having the Informational Revolution. Does it matter? The Bible continues to march on. It's still, it's still so applicable to every sort of man and every sort of circumstance. And it's still bought. It's still read. It's still appreciated. It still intrigues the soul of man because it's written by God and addresses man's soul when he's born again by the Spirit of God. The Bible has survived. One more point. One more point before we come to the Lord's table. One more point. I know that God wrote the Bible because of the doctrine of salvation that's in it, brethren. Amen. I know that God wrote the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy 3.15. 2 Timothy 3.15. You know, if God didn't write the Bible, then liars wrote it. Because it says that God wrote it. So if God didn't write it, then it was written by a bunch of liars. Right. Now, the plan of salvation that's in the Bible exceeds all other plans of salvation as light excels darkness. Now, are we going to conclude that a bunch of liars got together and wrote a plan of salvation that excels all other plans of salvation as light exceeds darkness? The Bible is God's word because of its plan of salvation. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, this is what we want to give our children. This is what they need from their youth up. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. From a child, that little boy Timothy had been taught by his mother and his grandmother the glorious plan of salvation as it's contained in the Bible. Let's compare it for just a minute. I'll have a hyperlink in your outline where you can go get a thumbnail sketch in the six major religions of the world and read their, forgive me, Read their plan of salvation, and I want you to see the huge difference. What is the, let's think about what is the object of salvation. What do you want God's work of salvation to accomplish? What's the purpose of salvation? What is the object? To the Muslim. Have I taught you enough to know what the object of salvation is to a Muslim? He wants to recline on a couch in the shade for the rest of eternity swilling wine with 72 virgins waiting on him. Now, you can't love 72 women, so all it is is a sexual orgy in the sky. Pitiful. Now, look look at the object. That's all the higher they can think. Now, now brethren, I think in the South there was an expression, something about a, if, a, if there's a low point, you can describe that low point as being the belly of a snake in a wagon rut. Is that, a, is that a southern expression? Now, that's getting pretty low when you've got the belly of a snake in a wagon's rut. But that's Islam. When the highest they can elevate their thoughts is to a sexual orgy in the sky on a couch in the shade. Okay, let's go on. It doesn't get any better as you jump around. How about the Mormons? The Mormon idea of salvation, this is the goal that they all aim for, is to have your own planet and be the god of that planet, and you get to populate it by the number of wives you have. That's why they believe in polygamy, and though they don't practice it outwardly for them to be caught in the state of Utah, they do continue to have spiritual marriages right. whereby they join themselves to other women so that when they have their own planet and they are the god of that planet, they can populate it. Now, that's as high as they can get, and that's no higher than the little teenage boy from New York that invented the whole thing. 
All it is is a fantasy about polygamy and having your own planet and being the god of it. Now, how elevated is that? It sounds like a science fiction comic book. But it's Mormonism. How about the Hindu? Oh, I don't even know how to describe a Hindu. It's so convoluted, but listen, here's how it goes. The Hindu, his idea of salvation is hoping to break the cycle of reincarnation and to get rid of the bad karma that keeps causing him to descend from one form of life to another. If he can get rid of that karma, break the cycle, lose his self-existence, and become one with the universe because oneness with the universe is God so he can become God. That's how they believe. And you th- I, know, I, know what, I know what you're saying to yourself. He's nuts. In, in logic, it's called, I've created a straw man. I've made a man out of straw, and I go over there with my sword, and I can cut the head off a straw man because I made a man out of straw. But just go read anything you want to about Hinduism. Right. They're caught in a cycle of being reincarnated over and over again. If you lived a bad life, then you've got bad karma. Bad karma means you're coming back as an animal. If you didn't do a good job as a dog, then you're going to be you're going to have bad karma again. You're going to come back as an insect. And on and on it goes. And the only the only salvation that they can even talk about, it's not really salvation, is you get to break that cycle, lose self-consciousness and your own self-existence, and you become one with the universe. Oh, that's elevated, isn't it? To the Buddhist, now, he can't even get that high. And all Buddhist is, all a Buddhist is, is a mixed-up Hindu. That's where it came from. A Hindu one day just sat down underneath a tree, and he said, I've seen four kinds of suffering today, and it was too much for my mind. His, listen, he's named at 600 B.C. I don't care what his name is. I can't remember it. I want to remember something that's important. 600 B.C., a Hindu walked along. He saw four forms of suffering that day. It was too much. It overwhelmed his mind. He sat down under a tree, crossed his legs, and he said, I'm not going to get up until I can figure out how to get rid of all the suffering in the world. And he didn't. He got up a little while later, and he'd figured out how to get rid of all the suffering in the world. He laid down the laws of Buddhism. All suffering is caused from desire. The only reason somebody suffers is because they're desiring something different. Therefore, if we can get rid of desire, then we can get rid of suffering. And so to be a Buddhist and to find salvation is to eventually get lost. Lose your desire. No more suffering. You don't exist. You never really did to begin with. I just wish they would all meditate on railroad tracks. (laughs) Their worldview is they don't really exist. But I wish they'd really prove it to me. Their worldview is they don't really exist. And so to, to make peace and to get rid of all suffering, you just stop desiring. Now, that's their idea of salvation. What, did it, what is it to a Sioux Indian? Let's find the happy hunting ground, endless herds of buffalo, an endless supply of arrows, and a squaw with teeth. That's heaven, and the objection of, that's the object of salvation to a Sioux Indian. What is it to a Christian? It is so different, they can't even be compared, and they shouldn't be compared. It is unbelievably different. There's nothing on earth to compare it to. We're not looking for a single thing on earth to translate to heaven because there is a... God wrote the Bible. All these other books were written by men, so the best they can think of is the best experience they had in this life. And the best experience to an Indian is to have an endless supply of arrows with an endless supply of buffalo. But God wrote the Bible, so he rips our thoughts out of this earth, points them toward heaven, and he describes it in terms that we've never had before. There's no marriage in heaven. 
Jesus taught that very plainly. There's no marriage in heaven. So the best thing we have on earth in a relationship isn't there. What is in heaven? What does God tell us we're going to have there? Heaven is a place of perfect righteousness. Not perfect non-existence. Not perfect extinction. You know, a Buddha is waiting for nirvana. The moment when his self-awareness is extinguished like putting a candle out. That's their object. What is our object? To find a place where righteousness reigns and God dwells and this personal God has all saints spending eternity inheriting Him and enjoying Him forever and ever and ever as our God and as our Father showing us all that He owns and giving it to us. A heaven where there is a personal God that establishes righteousness and shares it all with us as His beloved children that He has loved personally and the self-awareness of our existence will be at the highest point it's ever been because we will be enjoying pleasures forevermore. And it's not because desire will end. It's because desire will be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the desire of our souls and it will consume us and we'll be happy with the consumption. What a difference. What an incredible... Now, which one of those notions was written by God? There isn't a thing to relate it to on earth. Every other plan of salvation, you can see man's earthly experiences creeping into it because he wants to duplicate them in heaven, just expand them in size or quality. But God wrote the Bible, and so he tells us about salvation. Listen, brethren, when I think about salvation, do you remember proof number seven when we see that the seven proofs that I've taught you that God saves men unconditionally? The seventh proof is... It's the only plan of salvation that gives God all the glory. Every other plan of salvation is based on works. I mean, even the Hindu and the Buddha has dharma. You know, karma is that you lived badly, and so now you got to go down in the cycle. Dharma is your so-called moral duty. But listen, our plan of salvation is entirely by grace. By grace. They don't even know what that is. Redemption. The concept of redemption. God dies for sinners is repulsive to Islam. You ought to read about it. They think that it is ridiculous to think that Jesus Christ had to die for sinners. They don't even believe he died. He left his body and it was replaced by another spirit and it went to the cross. Jesus Christ did not go to the cross in Islamic thinking or writings. But that's beside the point. The point I want to make is this, and it is true. I'll prove it to anyone who wants to see it. They cannot stand the concept of redemption. They don't have salvation. They just have, do your best for Allah. And if you get to die in a holy war or something, you'll probably go to your couch. But the Bible teaches that it's all of grace. It is so different. The Bible says it's all of grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And every other system is man doing something to distinguish himself as his own savior. Now, tell me what kind of a God would write a holy book where man does something to distinguish himself as his own Savior instead of God getting the glory. Did God write those books? Not unless he's really dumb, God. 
An intelligent God would devise a plan of salvation that gives him all the honor and the glory. And we've got it in the Bible. Amen. He gets all the glory. First Corinthians chapter one tells us, let him that glorieth glory in this. Let him glory in the Lord. Amen. The Lord saves. In fact, in that, pla- in that place, Paul said, look around. Don't you see your calling? How that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich are called. But look whose God has called and saved. It is the poor and the base and the foolish and the weak of this world. Do you know why God saves those kind? It goes on to tell us. It says the same words again. So that he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. The, the whole plan of salvation being by grace. And the ones he saves being the weaker ones of the human race. Both of those result in God getting all the glory. And you look into the Bible and you see that that's the plan of salvation in the Bible. It's not of works. It's of grace. And God gets all the glory. Therefore, there's only one being that could have written it. The one that wants all the glory. God himself. Because whenever men write a book showing the plan of salvation, they always work themselves into it by works so that they can distinguish themselves as their own saviors. Salvation by grace alone is too divine to be imagined and esteemed by men. For all of man's systems are based on works whereby they can get some glory for themselves. Just think about the Bible plan of salvation a little bit. They say this. If we don't write a plan of salvation where man has to work to earn his way to heaven, then there is no motivation for man to do good works. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says... I save you out of pure love. I reach down from heaven and pull you out of the mess of humanity, and I save you by pure grace. And if you want to know that I have saved you by pure grace, then you bring forth works consistently and bear fruit. Now, which one brings the most motivation as measured by the results? God's saints have gone to the stake so many times willing to lay down their lives that they might have a better resurrection because they're motivated by the love of that God that came after them instead of being pummeled into obedience by Allah that if they don't keep all Allah's commandments and do good works, then there isn't a chance of their harem in the sky. What a difference. The grace of God works upon man, and yet the Bible teaches us the way that we know we're God's is not because he gives us a glimpse of the book of life early. We know we're God's because we bear much fruit. There's a lot of motivation in that to bear much fruit. They hear us preach on the sovereignty of God, and they think you've taken away all the responsibility of man, but they don't understand the truth. It's been mentioned tonight by our brother in his prayer, show me a religion where the God adopts his enemies and makes them his sons to inherit all of his assets and to enjoy him personally as their father. It was mentioned, Charlie, in your prayer, and I appreciate that, and I commend you for wanting to remind God of his great work of adoption. But that is so different from all these other concepts. Brahman of the Hindus, just getting out of the cycle, there is no father-son relationship. There is no love of adoption in these other ideas of salvation. The concept of an eternal drama being played out in the universe, we're the only ones that can answer why you're here. They don't know why you're here. They don't know if you were a praying mantis, last life. They don't know anything. You know why you're here. 
because there is an infinite, intelligent creator God who wanted to display his perfections to the universe. And so he created us and he made us the objects of his mercy so that he could show the universe what the infinite measure of mercy is. And on those that he passed by, what the infinite judgment and wrath of a holy God looks like to display that to the universe. The entire panorama and drama is laid out in the Bible. We don't have a doubt about any of it. And it all fits perfectly with life and death and fear that we see around us. Amen. The five phases of salvation that I've taught you from the Bible explain it all perfectly and give us a complete picture from beginning to end. God wrote the Bible. There's no other holy book that lays out salvation that clearly. Eternal phase all the way to the final phase. Let me lay another one on you about salvation. Christianity is the only one that has a vital phase. Vital phase is when God operates on us and changes us vitally, gives us a living principle with inside us and changes us. Remember, Jesus Christ sat Nicodemus down and said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Other religions do not have a vital phase. They look at men, they don't see any difference between men. They don't recognize the difference between sinners and saints. They don't see that a man must be born again in order to even recognize God and to fear him and to do righteousness, to keep his commandments and to love him. And there it is, taught in the Bible. And we know that that must be true because as we look around and we see the differences between men, it is not based on anything that we witness in in them intrinsically, but God makes a difference. Because we see families where one is plucked out and the rest are left void of understanding, void of any desire for God. And we see God's blessing and His grace that way. It's the only plan of salvation that has a vital change in man. No other religion presents God as the offended party, the judge and the executioner in His plan of salvation and judge and condemnation. And that He provided salvation for His elect by the sending of his only begotten son to be an intercessor for them. It is so infinite in its intelligence and design of how God gets all the glory and how he took a man and elevated him to the pinnacle of power of the universe at his own right hand. It is beautiful. It's so sublime. It's so intelligent. And it answers all of our questions. And brethren, how do we know that God wrote it? Because it gives God all the glory And it is complete from beginning to end. And it leaves man utterly helpless, but for the grace of the mercy of God. Only God would write that. No man would ever want to write about him being given an eternal soul that he cannot turn off, that could be subject to eternal condemnation, and put it in the hands of another being. God wrote it because that's the way it is. God has given us souls we cannot turn off. And I'm thankful that I can't turn it off because he has in store for me and in store for you an eternity of pleasures that we've never experienced before. Nothing like this life, brethren. It's going to be experiencing God and knowing him, enjoying his presence every day for all of eternity. May Jesus Christ be praised. God wrote the Bible. Amen.